Welcome, I am Anders Bolling. You're listening to Mind the Shift, where we talk about shifts in the world and in our minds. Where are we heading? What do these ongoing shifts entail? What we put our attention to is what we get. The experience we imagine that we are having is also the one that we are having. Our society is, to a large extent, the story about our society. With information ever more massive and integration increasing, we can see that the narrative about what we're actually experiencing is coming undone or at least diverting. Are we better or worse off than ever? How should we interpret the trends? What trends are even relevant? We can see this in the polarization about what side represents the truth in the recent US elections. And we can see, in the, see it in the debate about democracy about inequality and the climates. My guest today is Bronwyn Williams. She is a futurist, an economist, and a business trend analyst based in Johannesburg, South Africa. Bronwyn has studied economics, marketing, and future studies at several universities in South Africa and in Britain. She works with strategic management and trend research. She tries to find out how new technology and digitization affect businesses and nations. She dissects how money will work in the future and management and governance. Bronwyn Williams lectures for business schools and is a frequent media commentator of future trends. She has worked on several research projects uh, with titles like the new urban tribes of South Africa and less stuff more stories. And she will soon be releasing a book entitled The Future Starts Now. Welcome, Bronwyn. Thank you so much for inviting me. Was that about correct or do you want to add something to your CV there? That, that's about correct. So yes, I work with a company called Flux Trends. I'm a partner there and our clients include people in both the public and the private sector. So we're fortunate enough to sort of work across that broad cross section of society. And we're also fortunate to engage with leaders, the people that are actually going to shape the world. So we've got some responsibility, not just to articulate what could happen, but also we do know that the trends and the advice that we do give to those leaders can or at least hopefully does have some sort of impact as to the decisions they make and the world we're actually going to build because that's what really the role of anyone in the future or trend space is it's not so much to predict the future as it is to both articulate what we should be concerned about in other words to warn about what could go wrong and alternatively to paint a picture of what could be from a much more positive space to actually encourage optimism and encourage action once again as i like to say if we do our jobs correctly we predict the future entirely wrong because whatever we say should have some impact in changing as to what actually oh, yeah. happens so <laughs> that's that basically what we do at the moment yeah well uh futurism fu future i mean what is a futurist really aren't we all you know relentlessly traveling through the present time uh heading towards those coming now moments that we call the future well, we should be. That's exactly what the book that you mentioned is about. It's a collaboration with futurists from all over the world. So I know my name's on the cover, but I've just really edited together a lot of views on the world because that's exactly the point. The future needs more views, more visions, not less views and more homogenous sort of views as to what the future can be. 
And what's very, very dangerous for society right now is because not all of us are exercising our ability, our natural human ability to be futurists over our own lives. We see a lot of people, a lot of societies of deferring their futures to leaders, be they political leaders or very, very big, powerful tech company leaders. So the sort of visions that we see for the future kind of fall into two piles at the moment, either very depressing, somber warnings about a future of you're going to have to make do with less and more scarcity. So the whole warnings of things like degrowth and limits to growth and all of those movements on the one hand. On the other hand, we've got a lot of visions for sort of techno utopias, which can also be quite totalizing. You know, these are the sort of visions coming out of the very, very big tech companies about taking humanity to the stars, sure, perhaps developing singularities and very, very advanced artificial intelligence. But at the same time, that vision isn't a vision of humanity that resonates with everyone. Not everybody wants to live either in a very austere degrowth world. And at the same time, not everyone wants to live in a sort of a big man's vision of what the techno utopia can be. And that's why we really feel quite strongly, at least the futurists that I've collaborated with, that more people need to be having conversations about where the current trends in both technology and society and the economy are taking us so we can start to sort of vote on those trajectories with both our actual votes at the polling stations, but also as consumers and as citizens, we need to be voting on those visions of the future with how we spend our time and how we spend our money. And if we don't have those conversations, then we can't be involved in shaping that future. And for me, it would be a tragedy for us to be sort of stuck in the present or to be in a sort of world where we do defer our future visions to a very limited group of powerful people in the world. So we definitely need more conversations around where mm. the future is headed. So is this what the book is about, to, to have this conversation about uh, what future we, we really want? Or what is it? What's the basic? Yes, hopefully. So it's called The Future Starts Now. And what it is, it's a consists of 20 essays, each written by a different future. So they come from all different continents, very, very different visions of the world. Everyone has picked an essay topic that's almost structured as a kind of a letter to the future about something that they believe they're either very concerned about or very optimistic about. So for example, some of the chapters refer to things like artificial intelligence and things like warfare and how that affects us. So that's some of the issues we pick up on there, all the way through to issues of amortality, which is the whole concept of sort of almost indeterminate immortality, barring sort of accident or deliberate sort of suicide and opting out of life. Wow. And we cover all those different questions, the things that futurists think about that perhaps the reader that picks up the book might not be thinking about yet. And what they have in common is that there are some plans afoot in all of these different views or issues that we address that have already been sort of taken charge of either by academic thought or by industry thought or perhaps by governments. We want to get people talking about these things so that they have a say as to how policies are structured and how sort of businesses are regulated around how those ideas are taking shape as we go forward. Because we have tried to choose topics that are important for all of us for various different reasons. They impact on us even if currently we're not involved in where that conversation is going. And so of course the, the whole concept of immortality is quite an emotive one because it affects all of us how long we live. And obviously we all want to live long and prosper, but the pursuit of longevity at the expense of everything else also obviously has some quite significant 
effects on society at large, things like social security safety nets. How does that play out? How does resource allocation and scarcity play out in a world where we've got a lot more older people and perhaps less young people competing for literal space and also for economic resources? So that's just an example of the sort of conversations that we have. The chapter I wrote for that actually refers to privacy and it's, a, it's in defense of having some secrets. And I think that that's quite a relevant conversation to sure. have right now, yeah. particularly mm -hmm. in 2020, where we're getting used to things like track and trace and more ubiquitous surveillance for health and security and safety reasons, sure. But even just from a commercial perspective, there is value to be had in less than perfect information being known to all of us at all times, even if it's just in terms of how we actually identify ourselves, individual flesh and blood human beings, we need to have some sort of separation of society to have perspective in the world that we're in. So the book really does cover a wide range of topics and conversations. The goal would be that after you've read the book, you would have had 20 different visions, all for very different independent thinkers. We don't all agree about all these things at all, but they're open conversations that we hope people will have around their dinner tables, with their colleagues, with people they interact with, to start more people talking about this. Because we do feel there's a lot of defeatism when it comes to the future. So mm. this plan is already in place. We have to accept whatever this policy is. We must just get used to, you know, giving up on our privacy or we must get used to a particular economic agenda. We must just accept it. And we don't have to do that at all. I mean, we've seen this year how quickly politics can turn from, from one view of the future to another if people yeah. feel empowered to participate in that conversation. And I think that that's probably the issue that we've identified and you mentioned it earlier, we're all supposed to be futurists. We're all supposed to have a view as to where we're headed. We know this, whether you're a motivational sort of speaker, whether you're someone who believes in meditation, whatever it is, we have to have some sort of goal and meaning to work towards to have a meaningful life as individual human mm. beings. And unfortunately, in times where we are being told about the limits to prosperity and about the constraints that we have in our society and we focus a lot on our problems, things like inequality and sustainability and climate change, it's very heavy conversations. And particularly for young people, young people mm. that don't feel empowered about this future they kind of feel like being thrown into, we can have sort of two things that happen. Either you can become inspired to change that future. And we have seen a few young people step up and lead global movements to change the course of history as to where we headed. But for many people, particularly young people, they feel very helpless and feel very stuck in the world that's been imposed upon them. And there's a term that we refer to in the future space known as postalgia, which is basically a hankering mm. after the present rather than nostalgia, which is looking back into the past. It's this sort of false but very pervasive belief that this is as good as it gets, that the future is going to be worse than tomorrow because of all the doom and gloom we hear in the news and all those negative trends that we hear about all the time. And this is a very paralyzing sort of concept to be stuck in. When you believe that today is as good as it's going to get, you have the danger of spiraling into things like nihilism and, you know, like present bias and making very short-term yeah. decisions if you don't believe that the future is worth investing in. And you can't believe that the future is worth investing in unless you believe that you have some sort of a say in how it's going to turn out you have to have some sort of agency that goes with it. So those two are very important. And I think that in Western society, you know, the weird Western society, Western industrialized, rich, educated, developed, all of that, the, the weird acronym, we tend to have more problems with this whole concept of postalgia, particularly because our populations in the sort of that Western hemisphere are aging. 
the, the, the institutions are, are elderly, perhaps, perhaps they're sort of getting to a, a point of marginal returns to all these wonderful policies that have been very successful over the last hundred years, but the cracks are starting to show. And there is a sense of less energy and hope than there is perhaps in some of the younger economies with much larger youth bulges. I think that in South Africa, we're in a very interesting perspective to just sort of watch those two sides of the world because we have both a lot of Western influence in our culture, but we also have a young, youthful African population. So we kind of sit between the two worlds, the new world and the old world. And I think that, you know, there's a lot to be learned from, from younger people and from younger nations at, at large about being optimistic, about planning for a future proactively rather than being sort of victims of policy that you might not feel you have control over. It's kind of a paradox, I think, because I mean, what you're saying, I, I agree with completely. I've been working as a journalist for decades, so I know all about the negativity bias and and focusing on negative trends, uh, although most of the trends are actually fairly positive, but you, you can always find the negative trends if you want to. Uh, now we have, I mean, the world is richer than ever and the health is better than ever. and. Uh, and still there is so much doom and gloom. And if you go back back maybe 40, 50 years in history, I think there was more optimism at least. Well, maybe that was also because of the proximity to the, the end of the Second World War when people were probably optimistic that anyway, it's, it's not gonna be as bad as it, as, it, as, it, as it was from 1939 to 1945. So maybe that's the reason why people were more optimistic, but I have the impression that they were more optimistic in the 50s and 60s and maybe 70s, and then something happened. And, and this has happened at the same time as the world has become ever more integrated. So we're, we're together now, in, we're in the same boat, so to speak. We, we know in real time what's happening on the other side of the planet. And that has uh, coincides with some kind of pessimism that is really difficult to understand. I, I don't know if you follow me here, if you have some thoughts on that, on the integration thing and why we all of a sudden have become so pessimistic, especially young people, when it looks as if, I mean, if you look at the trends ob objectively, uh, the numbers, it's, it's not that bad actually. Even, I mean, even wars are, are, are more or less common now than they were in the 80s and 70s. Yeah, absolutely. I think that I totally understand what you're saying there and, and there are reasons for it. And globalization is definitely one of those big causes. And that's because sort of happiness is more determined based on your sort of relative status in society and your relative gains over the turn of your life rather than, and that's very personal, as opposed to absolute gains for humanity at large. Mm. And unfortunately for some people in the world, fortunately for other people in the world, globalization, liberalizing of economies, opening up of markets is very good for absolute gains in terms of overall living standards and outcomes for any human that's born into the random lottery of life. You know, you don't know when you end up in the world or what, what socioeconomic bracket you'll fall into. There's never been a better time to be born, which is thrown onto planet Earth. However, within different economies, particularly economies that were formerly more prosperous, those relative gains have come at a cost of losing out of some relative or, or relative status. So we have absolute gains, but relatively the difference between rich nations and poor nations has declined a bit. And it's one of the one of the strange things because inequality and the whole sort of like envy and greed dynamics that drive so much of human behavior because we so constantly compare ourselves to each other means that if in general, the, the countries that were worst off in the world are getting better off, 
wealthier countries and formerly more superior, and I'd rather use yeah. that word with the, with the huge degree of sort of hesitation, but just to sort of illustrate how that they well, sort of felt. Sounds like a terrible mindset. I mean, we should, we should all <laughs> rejoice. We should all be happy when we see that the rest yeah, of the world but, is But it's, it's, it's very interesting because at the same time, it's sort of international inequality has declined, which is a good thing for humanity at large. Inter intranational inequalities tended to increase. Has increased, yes. Yeah. Has I increased. Know. And this also this now you've got two reasons why people that were formerly doing very, very well and very, very optimistic about the future feel worse off because they are worse off compared to their richer neighbors at home. And they're yeah. also less better off than they were compared to people perhaps in other parts of the world. So the sort of the gains of the globalist projects have been unequally distributed across the world. So overall, great for humanity, yeah. but so groups of, have yeah, been I, left behind. I, I, I'm with you there. But as a matter of fact, the, the increase in the internal injustices and in, inequality uh, is uh, bigger, much bigger in, the, in, in those countries, the semi-rich countries that have, that have developed late, like, for instance, China, which is a very salient example, and India and those mm -hmm. kinds of countries, more so than in the so-called Western world. So, but I mean, I think, I don't think people in China or India are as pessimistic and as, uh, uh, well, uh, negative towards the future as they are in, in Europe and, and America, for instance. Yeah, that, that, that's probably because of what I was saying earlier, because those countries were starting off with such a lower base, their absolute gains have been that much more significant. They still feel like they are winning. And that's the whole thing. People want to feel like tomorrow can be better than today. And that can sound quite selfish, but it's really not. This is the basic human drive, whether we're looking at it as individuals or as societies or as our species as a whole. We have a drive to progress, to make tomorrow better than today. And progress is really about doing more with less, so having more, more abundant lives, however you want to define that. And when you take away that sort of hope that tomorrow can be better than today, you have huge dissatisfactions. There's that sort of twee calculation that happiness is the difference between expectation and reality. So when your reality ends up being better than the world you thought you were going to have, which it has been for this generation coming out of China and India, you generally tend to be happier. However, at the same time in the West, you've got the millennial generation, which is people around about my age and this sort of 30s going into 40s right now, this is the first generation in many Western countries, including the US and the UK, which dominates a lot of the Western narrative, that are less well off than their parents were at their age. So they have not been able to exceed the living standards their parents have. Are they really that? I mean, I mean, if you look at the, what, they, what they have yeah. access to in terms of technology, communication, uh, possibility to travel, all those things. Is that really true? Or is it, are you talking about, I well, mean, it comes as a it comes, it comes the in number terms of, of like dollars that they have wealth. in their bank account? Relative wealth. So, so all those things that like uh, access to communication and travel are sort of nice to have. But in terms of basic, basic necessities, things like healthcare, housing, and education, which are generally the three big things people worry about, those things have increased. The prices have increased at a higher rate than earning capacity has kept up. And there are reasons for it. In fact, some of them come back to the longevity question. A lot of the reason why millennials are less well off than their parents are because their parents are still alive, which is actually a good thing, which means that yeah. wealth transfer has not taken place. And that's said to be the biggest wealth 
transferred basically the, the history of Western humanity over there. So there are reasons for it, but the point is that people feel poorer than they were. You've got people in their 30s that still can't afford a house, they're still renting, they still don't have enough excess cash to save, they still don't feel like they're going to be able to get ahead. Now this might be a feeling, it might not be true in absolute terms, but in relative terms they feel like their living standards have declined to what they had when they were growing up. And this creates a huge case of discontent. And at the same time, you do have inequality that's increasing, particularly in the US market, which tends to dominate a lot of these conversations at quite a rapid rate. And it has been doing so since we've sort of let go of the, the gold standard and since the sort of financialization and monetization of the economy has accelerated. We've had inflation, but like the future, not exactly equitably distributed. So we've seen some, some people get much, much richer very, very quickly, but very little work and other people working very, very hard and unable to keep up with the inflationary constraints of, of their markets. And I think that this is probably a, a symptom of the, the weird sort of half capitalist, half socialist economies we have at the moment that essentially give us the worst of both worlds. So you've got <laughs> lots of competition, but not enough yeah. social security at the same time. You know, so you've got inefficiencies, but you also have worst, competition. Worst two words, so yeah. we've got the worst of both worlds rather than the best of both. And we've kind of rid, been able to ride on that bubble for, for some time since the sort of end of sort of communist fascist century of last century, the sort of neoliberal globalist agenda was the winning ideology of last of last century. But it shows that these systems can't necessarily scale either. And perhaps there's time to look at new models that perhaps bring the best of both the capitalist and socialist worldviews forward rather than the worst. You know, to sort of look at things like maximizing yeah. for freedom, but also maximizing for safety rather than maximizing for competition and inefficiency, which is a very different way to look at things. Talk about nostalgia, which is a brilliant word. I, I love it. Uh, but it, I have the impression that young people today, and even people of my age, middle-aged people, it don't doesn't seem to me that they want to continue the growth that we experienced during so many decades, and which made people happy, and which is apparently making people in China and India happy today. But today, people in the West don't just don't seem to. Well, some do, of course, but but like like I say, young people and and people my age who are who are worried about the, the environment and things like that, they 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 they're envisaging some kind of different economy, different I don't know, different kind of welfare state or welfare in general. Yeah, those ideas are definitely definitely prevalent at the moment, but I think we can distinguish once again between sort of the the European West and the sort of American West. I'm not sure they're quite there yet. I think America is still very much growth orientated at the moment. I think there is a shift happening in sort of European consciousness around that, around being more sustainable, more working within boundaries, rather than looking towards just growth at all costs. So for me, I'd suppose that there's, from my perspective, there's probably a middle ground to be had there. Because without, without growth, it doesn't have to be economic growth, but without, let's just use the word progress instead, without something to look forward to as a society, as humanity, whether that's looking at sort of going into space like Elon Musk and the, the Mars crew want to do or whatever it is, without something as to what comes next life can become quite depressing. And that's why we get stuck in that whole sort of nostalgia mindset. So we have to have some goal to work towards, something to progress to, towards. What that progress is can be debated. And I think that perhaps the challenge comes in when those conversations around, let's not focus around growth at all costs become conversations around, we must do less with less rather than trying to do more with less 
It's a very different conversation. And it's a trap that we can fall into. And it's, it's an easy trap to fall into because we've got such important sustainability issues that we do have to deal with and we have to operate within those constraints. But when the conversation becomes only about constraints rather than about sort of creatively maximizing those constraints, it's a very, very different conversation. And I suppose one example there that can give an indication of a world that could have growth or progress without necessarily impinging on our future birthrights or future generations in terms of natural resource sustainability are some of the interesting things happening in the virtual reality space right now. So I'm kind of wearing my, my futurist hat a bit more, but what if there was a way to go beyond limits to physical growth but to still have access to growth from a commercial, from a business, from a personal perspective by playing in virtual environments. And we've started to see the seeds of the virtual economy coming on board right now with people th doing things like selling virtual real estate for practically the same price as a piece of land oh, really? you go for in my street right now on platforms like crypto voxels or Decentraland. They're really out there. It sounds crazy. But at the same time, this becomes a whole platform for a future economy. And this is what sort of digital scarcity has done. This comes out of the mindset of your crypto communities and your Bitcoin, which is obviously the first one. This whole understanding that as much as digitization can give us abundance, so we can have one piece of information, everyone can have access to it. That's fantastic. That's already a form of progress. Digitization can also create artificial scarcity, which is required for any sort of economic growth. So if you can imagine virtual economies that allow people to trade and build and make and create and sell and, you know, progress for themselves in our human society to give that sense of accomplishment, that sense of progress, that is what we mm. want to have a meaningful life in a way that's not just reliant on wanton destruction of the, of the natural environment, we can have very, very different conversations about how to be excited about the future. And there's so much space to be played with there. I mean, for a silly example, we all know we've all been stuck in 2020. Most of us have been stuck in our homes with the whole lockdowns and everything that's gone on with the health side of our market. One of the big success stories there was a platform called Animal Crossing, which was a kid's game. Yeah. So it's a little game. It's came out of Nintendo. I think it came out of Japan. Very, very popular. Adults are playing it too. What was so interesting to me from my perspective is how quickly real life workers found a way to earn real currency in the virtual game. So we saw everything from interior designers in London offering their services to design the little game homes that the gamers had on the virtual platform. So as a gamer, you could pay a real designer to design your virtual house there. Clothing designers or fashion labels were selling designer avatar skins for the little pandas and bunnies that ran around this game. It sounds ridiculous. But the questions that allows you to start asking about how you, we can create parallel economies that allow for progress without constraining natural resources open some more interesting conversations. So those are the conversations I like to have about how we can have progress and prosperity, but also have sustainability. I don't think that we necessarily have to choose one or the other because it's very, very difficult. And I do a lot of talking for younger people, sometimes a bit of lecturing for universities and high schoolers. And when you're telling them Earth's in trouble, we've overshot our planetary bounds, we have to do more with less, you're not going to be able to travel like your parents did, you're not going to be able to own a car or a house. Those are not conversations you can get excited about as a teenager mm. or as a young person. You can't be excited about that. We can't only be taking things away from, uh, from the next generation because we've overshot our share. 
we have to be giving them an option about what could happen instead what can they be working towards then too otherwise it is completely depressing yeah and scared people are the the people that is easiest to to rule over i think so uh, i mean there are a lot of conspiracy theories out there about the, the elite trying to keep the people in fear all the time because it's so much easier to to control them which is probably true i mean Scared people are, their judgment is, is really terrible. But anyway, uh, you were mentioning this scarcity thing that I think uh, a lot of our current society, our current matrix, if you will, is uh, based upon the, the, the concept, the notion of scarcity. So, uh, and I'm not, I'm not actually convinced myself that, that, that things are as scarce as they are presented many times like uh, commodities of different types um, and you, you know this book the limits of growth that came out in the 70s that that has showed to be very wrong in all its predictions almost about when gold and uh, tin and whatever copper oil oil <laughs> uh, was going to 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 finish to to, to end and it, it doesn't end i mean it's always there. It, it never it never goes down to zero because b- before it go- comes down to zero, we find something different, something else, something better to utilize, to use as energy source or whatever. And I know you're talking about money here now, and this is really interesting. I know you have some radical ideas about money and and the power over money. How how do you think that the economy of our world can be truly democratized? It's a big question. Well, I. Th- yeah, it's a very big question. I think, I think the first point to make there is that monetary systems are human created systems. And the monetary systems that we use in our, in our real economy right now are essentially fiat monetary systems. That means it's currencies issued by our governments. And those currencies are only really backed by two things. They're backed by faith and they're backed by force. In other words, first of all, we have to believe in them. So really they're made up. They, the money that we use doesn't really have a value other than the fact that we all believe that it does. And usually when currencies break down, the first thing to go is the faith. But then, of course, you've got the other the other thing propping it up behind that is the force. So if you have a government, your government can force you to believe in a particular currency because they will force you to pay your taxes in that particular currency. And that's what a government does. They have a monopoly over force, really, to control law and order and to distribute guns and butter, which is the sort of basic, basic you know, function of, of a government. So it's propped up by the force of the law and it's propped up by faith. And as long as we believe that these systems work blindly without questioning what goes into them, we can find ourselves at exactly the problem that we were speaking about earlier, this sort of creeping inequality, the creeping financialization of our societies as the rules of the game get changed unfairly, which is what happens when the money printing fires up, sort of like use that that well-known term for it. So things like quantitative easing or modern monetary theory that say we can just spend more money because when we do that, we are, we're not really changing the real, once again, scarcity of things in the system. And the most important scarcity is not actually stuff. The most important scarcity that we're not able to change there is our time as human beings. Mm. So mm. we end up having to work harder and more for less, really. So we end up, you know, spending more time before we get to our tax freedom day at the end of the year before we can start, you know, working for ourselves, which is, which is a very interesting concept. That whole concept of tax freedom day generally now comes halfway through the year which means for the first half of the year, you're sort of paying your debt to society and only yeah. then, you know, do you get to sort of work on improving your own lots and life, which is what gives us a lot, a lot of hope and meaning and all the rest of it. 
So when it comes to currencies, we have to understand that our, we sort of complicit in the <laughs> in what's going on in the world when we sure. don't understand what's going on. We don't understand how these systems are really systems of distribution of wealth in society. That's really what these what 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 fiat currencies do. They are enable governments to tax and to create wealth-based systems. They're not necessarily bad, but they do become incredibly unfair when the rules of the game are changed halfway through the game. In other words, mm. when we do engage in things like money printing, it is inherently unfair because people have been operating under the assumption that uh, a dollar or a rand or whatever the currency is, is worth a certain amount of my time. But now suddenly it's not quite, you have to do a bit more in order to you know, achieve that same amount of value in real terms. So I think we have to understand what's going on there. But in terms of redesigning systems to the future as to how we look at it, I think the cryptocurrency space has opened up good conversations. But once again, it does come with a warning. So the cryptocurrency idea is that it's a currency that's not backed by a government, by faith or force in that degree. It's backed only by consensus. So it's only hmm. backed by faith in this particular currency. Yeah. But the more people that fall into say, that network, say, the no, more no powerful force. and more robust it is. Yeah, exactly. So it's so it's, it's it's robust because it's got network dynamics. So is it going to be necessarily the world reserve currency coming forward? No one can speculate on that. People believe very strange things when it comes to money. We could we could change our minds overnight. We have to realize that these systems, the money itself, doesn't have any intrinsic value. We've got value as human beings. Our time has yeah. value. The tangible stuff in the world has real mm. value and all the value in the stock market, all the value of all the currencies is essentially underwritten by the real, real economy. And that is mm. human labor. That is real natural resources. That is actual land. All exactly. the rest of it. Exactly. <laughs> so <laughs> that's, that's, that's the real wealth there. So I think we do have to separate also our understanding of money is the difference between a means of transaction and a store of wealth. Conversations that get conflated quite a lot because the means of transaction is, is a convenience thing. Of course, we have to have a sort of a unit of account that we can all do our business in so we know what points belong to what person, but then also separating the real wealth behind that. And that's the sort of as a store of wealth. Should money be a store of wealth going forward? Those are questions that we, we, can, we can debate as society. But the whole which would mean probably going back to gold and silver or things like that, uh, metals like that. Are you? Uh, it could be what, anything that is anything many, that is. Many are many are buying gold these days. They're saying, "Oh, this is we have to go back to gold. This is the only valuable thing that we can we can trade with." Like you say, fiat money is just paper. It's just faith. But gold is the it's thing. It's just points. It's points. It, it can be gold. I, for myself, I do like to invest in real things, intangible things. So whether that is property or whether that is collectible art or whether that is gold or whether that is silver, something that has tangible value does endure more over time. And, or at least, you, at least you only have to protect it yourself. You know, you can protect something physically if it's a physical good. And those things are the things that are scarcer. There's no scarcity in the fiat monetary system at the moment, particularly as I Ideas like modern monetary theory yeah, because they can always print more limitless money, money printing yeah exactly it just it's it, it becomes no longer valuable as a store of wealth so i'd rather invest in things that have at least a tenuous tie to reality so if you're investing in businesses i like businesses that own stuff and not businesses that just involve in sort of service and platform-based businesses as much as they make a lot of money now they are reliant on the real economy and if you look at the big tech companies they are all pretty much platform businesses what is a platform? It's essentially a bazaar. It connects buyers and sellers. 
So it can get as big as it likes. But when it runs out of buyers and sellers, it runs out of real value, right? So if you think about it. So Amazon requires sellers to, put, to push goods through its platform and buyers to buy it. So eventually, if it gets too big, it will collapse in and of its own weight. And that's where those whole concepts of things like scale and limits to growth do make sense. <laughs> the virtualized okay. financialized economy does have to, at some point, like an elastic band, come back into alignment with the with the real constraints in the real world. So for me, I do like I do like the tangible. That's not to say that I'll get rich in the short term investing in that sort of thing. When it comes to future currency systems, looking at currencies that are not attached to governments per se, so that are more decentralized, that allow for free flow of exchange of, of really it's energy. That's what money is, right? It's exchange of ideas, it products, services, businesses, that allow for frictionless free flow of energy between societies is definitely something to work towards. Whether the Bitcoin system is the winning idea coming out of it is debatable. It's also worth mentioning that your central bank digital currencies have also been spawned from the from the, <laughs> the cryptocurrency space with very, very different outcomes because the central bank digital currency is essentially a license to print money that much more easily if you are a controller of a fiat currency. So mm -hmm. that's, that's, not, that's exactly going almost backwards, almost the opposite of what we want to be doing. We want yeah. to have more equitable money. We want to have money that doesn't make some countries rich at the expense of others. And that's also something that someone like myself that lives in a third world or developing country is concerned about. When the United States dollar does up its money printers, we have to honor the value of that dollar as a weaker currency. They don't have to honor ours if we do the same thing. So, you know, when a richer country changes the rules of the game again, fiddles the numbers on the board halfway through, there's always someone that loses. So I do think we have to have more free and fair money that's not it's not dominated by the guys with the biggest guns in the room. And that mm. will require tethering it to something that is fair, a fair point system, whether that is something like a gold standard or whether that is something like a Bitcoin, where you've got a limited supply mm. at a at a definitive, you know, inflation rate. You know, it's only releasing certain yeah. coins at a time, but, but at least makes the rules fair. Mm. Where and how do you think that kind of shift can start? Can it start on the national level or... Does it have to start uh, on the grassroots level or how does it how does it all begin this uh, transformation that's... of the money system? <laughs> well, that, it, it could happen two ways. It could happen top down in terms of a sort of a global monetary system, like a one world currency, which I think some people find very utopian and other people find very dystopian. But that's a theoretical possibility. Right now, based on what's happened over the last few years and how the cracks have come into globalization and the world seems to be sort of regionalizing and balkanizing a little bit, you know, with the trade wars going on and fragmentation, even of like Britain leaving the EU, there seems to be a mood against global homogeny. There's cracks in the UN and the WEF and all the rest of it. It seems like that's not going to happen quickly, a one world sort of top down yeah. currency, one rule for everyone. The bottom up movement at the same time seems to be gathering a lot of speed. And this is, of course, what's happening in the crypto space. There's many, many cryptocurrencies at the moment. Bitcoin's market cap has done phenomenally well this year <laughs> with the rumors of conspiracies and the rumors of quantitative easing and the, all of this. That all strengthens the narrative. And what's particularly interesting there as an analyst is seeing how successful those cryptocurrencies, those decentralized bottom-up currencies have been in countries that have had very, very tough economic times in places like our neighboring countries, Zimbabwe, and places like Venezuela, it's become almost a portal to move money that's not attached 
to your government, which is very, very interesting. And I suppose just from a sort of more sort of, as you were mentioning earlier, a more social welfare perspective, because that is the catch in a world where money is not gamed by a system and not backed up by warfare, how then do you get the butts of the people, which is the other end of the equation? The government's always got the guns to defend the borders and to enforce the rules and to enforce the value of their currency, but it also gives you something in exchange. It gives you a social security safety net. How do you do that with a decentralized currency? A decentralized international free-flowing currency is not easy to tax, right? Because they're only operating on a borderless space rather than a nice, neat border. You know, it's much more difficult. How then are you able to give people the security they need to want to participate in society in a very, very unequal world? And there we also started to see some interesting ideas coming out of things like what I'm calling open basic incomes, which is almost an alternative to a universal basic income. But mm -hmm. unlike a universal basic income, which is set up by a government for a particular nation, for a defined group, and that's sort of compulsory for everyone to participate in, these open basic income systems are incentive driven rather than threat driven. So you don't have to participate because you must pay your taxes in order to go oh, yeah. order for the yeah. system to be re redistributed. They're incentivized in ways that both givers and senders and receivers of these incomes are able to earn a basic living wage, or at least in theory, mm -hmm. they'll get to. And the, one of the interesting ones there is Circle UBI, they call themselves. They've started just a couple of months ago. They've had a huge sign up. So, you know, once you get into these systems, you are able to start participating in them. And it's a way to, to get money to people who need it most, but without sort of bypassing the, the faith and force you know, dynamic of a traditional currency. And I think we do have to think sustainably about that because society is premised on having some sort of rights and entitlements enforced and that does require cash. Yeah, well, you, did, you touched before upon the core of the thing here, which is that value isn't actually money. It doesn't have any value in itself, in and of itself. It's uh, people and what people do and produce and create that has the value, of course. So, I mean, in the long, very, very long run, one could, of course, uh, have the vision that we don't need money at all uh, in the end. Yeah. Because, I mean, why, why should we? Why, why, why should we have money in the long run? Why should we have it at because all? Because <laughs> we, we just want to do things here in the world. We want to do things and experience things and create things and produce things and, 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 and uh, services. So that's the whole thing. Exactly. There was actually a chapter in our book by a gentleman called Mathana Stender. He is a, he's an academic. He's based in Berlin at the moment. And his, his essay in our book is titled No Money Beyond Mars. And he's looked at exactly that. How do you get to a post-monetary economy? And he's, he's yeah. started to sort of premise that on thinking, we're going to go to the to new planets at some point. Elon Musk has already said he's not going to obey any terrestrial laws when he gets there. So why should we sort of obey terrestrial monetary and economic dynamics? How do we start with a clean slate is to build an economy that doesn't actually rely on the rules that we have currently. Yeah. You know, Karen Ism, uh, I, I presume, this is Swedish futurist, uh, works, uh, Sounds familiar. Talk, talks a lot about these issues as well. Maybe you don't know her, but I, I interviewed her the other week here. And uh, she actually spent uh, four weeks in a s simulation of Mars. He was in, in the Himalayas mm -hmm. to create new. That was not, not so much about money, but how to create um, a society when you start from scratch. So, which yes. leads us over to my, my following questions here, because it's all intertwined. It's all a, a web, of course, uh, 
money goes very, very closely together with, with the nation state, which you have already mentioned, because I mean, the, the, the nations that are central banks that are issuing these fiat monies, fiat monies, they are, they have the force. Uh, so let's go over to those kinds of questions. Um, what might be in the pipeline, so to speak, when it comes to governance now, because, and maybe we can have the US election here as a backdrop. Uh, are, are there other ways of organizing society that are, that are um, emerging now that you can see emerging? Uh, maybe, I, I think you have been talking about networks of cities, for instance, which is a very interesting thought. Is that happening? And, and in that case, when, when we, we, we see these new structures emerging? Yeah, that's, that's a very interesting question. And just like we were talking about earlier, ideally we want to have free flow of money that's not tied down to borders. That's, a, that's fair rules for everyone, no matter what country you live in, depending on how, how powerful your government is, shouldn't impact the value of your time, right? So we want to have borderless, free flowing money. At the same time, we can start to think what is belonging to a nation. Right now we have nations that are tied to geographies. In fact, there's a book that came out in the UK, I think it was last year, it was actually called Prisoners of Geography. You know, we sort of mm. so tied to our locations and where you're born means you have a very different set of rules and you're kind of stuck in that. It's very difficult to immigrate as you know, even as a skilled professional, yes. let alone if you come from a, a poorer country and you're trying to escape from somewhere. So are there different ways that we can order society based not on your place of birth, but rather on your values? Because once again, as someone who doesn't believe that necessarily homogenous one size fits all view of the future is the best, I think we do need choice. We need to be able to, for some of us want more rules, some of us want less rules, some of us want more freedom, some of us want more security. How then do you sort of group those people together in a way that's fair? And what we've started to see is the emergence of this idea of, of virtual cities. And it's come out of a lot of the conversations of what's happening in Hong Kong at the moment. I'm sure most of your oh, listeners yeah. know about the, the pro-democracy protests going on there. Hong Kong's got basically like a ticking time bomb on its head. They go back to China in 2050. They're kind of running out of time. They like the freedom that they have at the moment. They understand that the way that perhaps China governs society isn't the way that necessarily they've been used to or the way that the citizens of that particular city want to be governed in the future. So they've been looking at alternatives because Hong Kong has always been an interesting place, sort of intersection of West and East and different trade routes and all the rest of it. And they thought, and thought leaders starting to think about now, how do we take the ethos of Hong Kong away from the island itself? So if the island has to go back, the physical land has to go back to mainland China, how do we take the people and the ideas with us somewhere else? And they're coming up with these ideas like a virtual citizenship. So you could be a citizen of Hong Kong, even if you are living in a territory, whether that's in America, whether that's in Australia, whether that's in the UK, you could be a, a sort of global citizen. So almost like diaspora cities where people have the same ideology, they tapped into the same sort of economy, but that economy is not tied to a physical location. It's rather tied to a mindset. And that's quite an interesting idea because as human beings, our ideology or our, who we are as human beings is something that's more than just our physical sort of body, you know, and our societies yeah. and groups that we belong to can be more than that. It's a very interesting thought. It almost comes back to those sort of fantasy digital economies I was speaking about earlier. So if you can have a virtual economy, why can't you have a virtual country too? Mm. And there's quite an interesting project you can look at there. It's, it's a bit Pangea. And what yep. they've done is it's like it's, it's also yeah. comes out of the crypto space and you can go there and kind of design your own constitution. Mm. So a virtual constitution, theoretically, people could be living on any of the continents in the world, but they're all tied up to the same socioeconomic system. 
See if you can always subscribe to a country. Yes, the... yes, a Liberland. Yeah, at least they've got some physical territory there, right? So yeah, but they, have, they, haven't, they yeah. haven't started building anything, but it's their, no. it's their, their idea, their plan. <laughs> the very thin strip of land. But until then, they're, it's virtual, I guess. It's a virtual citizenship. Even, even Estonia has done it with their, with their digital citizenship and digital registration of businesses. You know, So if you don't have a country, in fact, I know some people here that don't. Either they're refugees from different African countries, they're at least able to get an identity through those platforms. So theoretically, they might not be citizens of Estonia right now, but they do have an identity that's tied not to their country of birth. It's very, very interesting way to think about how we can reorganize our, our societies and give more people more of what they want. Then you have true globalization. Uh, yes. the bottom, I mean, uh, down from the down, from the bottom upwards, so to speak, from the grassroots level. Yeah, exactly. Of the globalization, which people are very, very fed up with. Of, of course, that, that that's very speculative at the moment, but I think we're going to see some of it, sort of digital citizenships and diaspora cities. And we're starting to see this even now with 2020 as well, where you've got companies that no longer require you to go into the office. Suddenly you can work for a company from anywhere you are and it doesn't affect your salary. So you've really, you've got sort of like virtual organizations. And when you start extending that idea to countries more so, it becomes quite interesting. I think the other things to look at that we've already seen, which also points in that same direction towards sort of virtual borders rather than physical borders, is what's happening in the geopolitical space right now. So up until now, geopolitics has also been tied to physical territory. You know, mm. like the United States might have a trade war with China and you've got the, mm. the two continents are like opposed to each other or aligned to each other in the case of the, the EU. But now we're sort of seeing the, the playing field of geopolitics has got different layers to it. So although geopolitically, say China and the US are in a trade war, you've also got companies that have alliances that are based in the US that actually have alliances with China, not with their own country. Yeah, <laughs> you know? yeah, so ideological yeah. alliances and virtual alliances on the trade level that are separate to the political level. So when we start seeing the sort of trade alliances separate from political alliances and information alliances separate from both of those two, they I'm talking about the spinternets and the firewalls, and how the sort of the virtual divisions of access to information don't map exactly onto the geographical boundaries of our no, nation states. No. Wow. So you're starting to see this sort of separation in all these layers. You can start to see why not citizenship being tied to ideology and, and how much that could actually solve a lot of our differences in society. Like look at what mm. happened with the United States election. That country is exactly. almost directly down the middle in terms of ideology. What if there was a way to say that both sides could get exactly what they want. You could subscribe to a much more left-wing agenda or you could subscribe to the other one and you'll pay taxes at that rate but then you only get access to services at the rate you paid for. What if there was a That's, way to divide it like that? You get what you want. for. like the, the perfect you know? solution. Why didn't <laughs> what if there was a way? We should have these conversations. Why not? Yeah. <laughs> and also the, the, the vision that is talked a lot about now between uh, the countryside and cities I'm I'm not that convinced that it's actually bigger now than it used to be. The, the difference between uh, urban I, life, and rural speaking. life. I mean, rural rural life was pr probably a lot more different than than city life if you go back 50 years. But anyway, there's a lot of talk about the, the division, and you can see that in the United States talking about the U.S. the election here, uh, the division between the Republicans and the Democrats. It's very very salient that that in cities people to to much larger extent vote Democrat. And so what do you think of networks between cities? I mean, I, can, I live in Stockholm, Sweden, and I can sometimes reflect over the, uh, 
I, I can have the idea, the, the thought that sometimes I, I feel more close to, to people living in, say, Barcelona, Berlin or Madrid or wherever than people living in, in, in a small hamlet outside of Stockholm here because they have, I, I think they have more in common with people living in small villages in Spain and France than, so if you see my point. So there's, there's actually a lot more in common between people who live in big cities. And this even goes, I mean, people have a lot of, uh, ignorance about Africa, for instance. I mean, you, you live in Africa, so you know all about this, but there are big cities in Africa that are very, very, I mean, where life is very similar to, to life in big cities everywhere else in the world. So if you take Cape, Cape Town or Joburg or even Accra or Nairobi, people living in those cities might have something in common with, uh, with, with New Yorkers and Stockholmers and Berliners and Moscowites, um, whatever. So what do you, what do you think about uh, the notion that you might have networks between cities and they cooperating, they having alliances uh, instead of being loyal to, their, to the central government of their, their so the geography, exactly. That makes a lot of sense. And we have started to see these sort of sister city projects that are popping up. Yeah. They tend to be more of a case of like, say, a more westernized or wealthier city will partner with the, with the developing market city. So say, for example, like a Stockholm pairing with a Johannesburg, for example, and sharing mm -hmm. technology, sharing resources, making the free flow of information and finances between those, those points that much easy and much easier. I suppose the challenge there comes in once again in, in terms of the inequality game in the case of then you, then you get to the case of saying like, you know, the cities get even more successful and more wealthy in the rural or the more suburban areas get left behind. And that creates sort of divisions of these, obviously. Well, if that is the case, that's not, that's not self, it's not self-evident. That, that it's, not, it's not self-evident, but that's, that's the, that's the sort of threat there. People don't want to support things that could be seen sure. as, as dividing it. So those are the challenges you have to get over. In terms of the technicalities, there's no reason why you can't be doing this. So when we already have like port cities, where I know China's done this quite a lot in Africa, where they're, they've essentially sort of colonized little pieces of little African countries. So they own that little city within the country and it has their own rules. And it's essentially an outpost of mainland China. But there's no mm -hmm. reason why we couldn't be, shouldn't be able to do the opposite, right? So we shouldn't be able to have like a little bit of, you know, whatever, a little bit of Sweden in South Africa that <laughs> operates by Swedish rules or vice versa. Okay. Why couldn't you have trade deals like that? So that yeah, yeah, people yeah. that have like-minded economic ideas can partner together rather than being forced into economic ideas by geography. So I think breaking through those sort of constraints of our very artificial human borders make a lot of sense. And of course, we want yeah. more choice. Wouldn't it be great if you could choose both where you live and the sort of laws and society you participate exactly. in? Right now, we have to have, take a package deal, but why should it have to be that way? Yeah. Why can't we think beyond what comes after the nation state? Is it sort of like the ideological state or what is it that comes next? Say that to the right-wing populist parties <laughs> that are popping up now. They're actually really- That could be taken badly out of context. <laughs> Exactly. That could be taken badly out of context, but none of these yeah. things, nothing's perfect when it comes to, to geography or geopolitics, but there are definitely, it's, there's room to have different conversations about how we organize things. So let's talk a little bit about Africa. You um, have, uh, you, you live in Africa in one of the wealthiest countries in Africa, albeit, but, but there is a lot of poverty also, but a lot of things are happening. And I co-wrote a book uh, together with a, a journalist colleague about Africa and Africa's challenges and its window of opportunity based on the, I mean, the main thread was the, uh, the demographic transition that is going on and the, the demographic uh, dividend that, that many hope uh, is coming to Africa, which it did in Asia in the 70s and 80s, 60s, 70s, 80s. So um, 
what do you think is happening? There's a lot of urbanization also. It's, I think urbanization is the strongest in Africa right now in, in the whole world. Is the mindset of scarcity and crisis coming to an end? Is, 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 is this urbanization um, doing something good for the, for the people of Africa? Is, is there hope? Are Africans more hopeful than we were talking about the, the doom and gloom in the Western world before? Is, are Africans more hopeful in their mindset than, than Europeans, for instance? I would say yes, but I would say South Africans are probably the least hopeful compared to our neighboring countries. And perhaps that because comes down the to richest. the fact that we have <laughs> the richest, we had a higher expectations. As we had, mm. we have like, you have got to talk about American exceptionalism. We also talk about South African exceptionalism. And unfortunately my nation has been known to be quite xenophobic to our neighbors. And has not exactly been a team player in that, the African agenda, looking forward to that demographic dividend window that kicks in in 2050. So we do have really one generation to sort of catch that wave. I mean, literally, we've got 30 years. We've got to catch that wave now. And if we don't, we're in very, very big trouble because a demographic dividend can be an utter disaster if your working age population is not actually working or not able to be productive, either yeah. due to a lack of education or knowledge or due to a lack of, of systemic support. So this is talking about institutional strength. And I suppose the second one is the bigger concern for me in terms of our political institutions don't seem to be on an upward trajectory, <laughs> the continent at large. And South Africa has not been a very good leader in that space either. We don't have complete failure of state institutions, but our, our institutions have not been exactly an exemplar of, of ethics or, or of, you know, fairness or stability, which they really should be. And that's really essential if we want to see growth in the continent. I suppose I'm probably more optimistic than most people in terms of the sort of four IR and the, the sort of rise of the machines and automation. I don't see that as a threat. I see that much more as an opportunity. I think it's very democratizing in terms of access to opportunity and ability to do something, to find ways to earn money for yourself. I mean, like I can give you crazy examples there, like people in Kenya and Nigeria who are earning a living looking for for bugs, like hunting, hunting code bugs online on, on like crypto platforms. I mean, oh, yeah. it's crazy. Like this, they, they're earning a, a decent living wage. These are people that would have otherwise have to be doing menial labor chores. And they figured this out on their own with no sort of, no structural support, no formal education in this. It's very democratizing in terms of opportunities. I think there's enough smart, ambitious young people to take advantage of the technologies and they are diffusing as soon as you've got a smartphone in someone's hand you've got an access to you can start your own business you can start your mm. own thing you can do this and i think that those those barriers are probably overhyped and not necessarily quite as difficult as they are to overcome but the challenges come in the in the infrastructure side of things not not necessarily physical infrastructure but legal infrastructure and systemic yeah. support from governments unfortunately corruption is endemic it's like cultural and that's a luxury you can get away with in a developed market it's not a luxury you can get away with in a developing market where every cent counts and where cash has to be distributed where it's most needed into dire poverty stricken areas. We don't have the luxury of having corrupt politicians that are siphoning wealth off a very lean economy to start with. We also have challenges in terms of things like property rights, intellectual property rights, mm -hmm. and even self-inflicted wounds when it comes to access to four IR technologies, things like digital taxes. I mean, that's a luxury of a, of a, of a first world country to start dabbling, yeah. dabbling in creative taxation mm -hmm. that actually limits access to technology. The beautiful thing with technology is you've got people like Starlink that are coming on board and offering poor communities in Africa literally free internet 
And then you've got a government that comes along and demands a tax for that privilege. Suddenly something that was going to give basically free access to knowledge and to piles and piles of technological know-how to young people that have no cash is taken away, you know? So that becomes very much a sort of a, an own goal. We've been talking about here, like things like blogging licenses in, in Tanzania, where you don't like have a blog unless you pay the government for a license to blog. And that's a hmm. self-inflicted wound. Why are you slowing down <laughs> the best fruits of, of what, what could be coming in terms Bad of Bad leadership. Mm. bad leadership but just applied in the wrong direction so mm. i think i think that we're too focused on like creating rules and slowing things down and not not focused enough on opening up the pipes so that would be my challenge to any leaders the streets lately in, in many african countries young people mainly protesting against these old dinosaurs so yeah. it seems to me that old they, politicians. They, yeah but the, these old politicians they have a little harder time now to 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 continue ruling so things are perhaps happening but also, we also see steps uh, backwards uh, like Tanzania now and like your own country you mentioned so it's a it's a mixed bag I guess yeah nothing's perfect in this world I, I am generally optimistic about Africa at large I'm more optimistic about our people and our politicians but fortunately we do outnumber them so <laughs> that's that's that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's a good thing something to be something to be positive about and I'm very optimistic about what technology is doing across the continent I think that a lot of those success stories and the smaller businesses the people that are finding ways to get access to the financial system things like access to microcredit things like access to capital things like just access to markets are perhaps underreported. I think that there's too much narrative around the threat that technology poses to the labor force. But mm. this is an unemployed labor force to start with. What are you taking away, right? You're only adding opportunities to the marketplace by empowering people with access to the internet. You're not, you can't take away a job that doesn't exist. And just on that note, um, a colleague of mine, Rona Kapoldis, and I've looked at, looked at a lot of the opportunities across the continent, not just in the tech space, but also in the real economy space that is very okay. underexploited by the local markets. Things like the ocean economy, things like the, the green energy opportunity here in the continent, the opportunity for Africa to become the breadbasket to the world, to the aging, you know, like overcrowded yeah. world. There Why are not? so many opportunities in our real resource space that go far beyond minerals. I mean, think I think minerals... Sort of the, the, the huge growth there is very much a, a last decade opportunity. Mm -hmm. The next decade mm -hmm. is more about yeah. sustainable usage of resources. And we are perfectly mm -hmm. positioned for that. And I think that perhaps if we are looking for opportunities in Africa, we need to sort of like literally look, look back down at the ground, get back down to the ground again and start thinking about the, the raw resource potential, the human capital, the natural capital on the continents and finding ways to harness that without it being expropriated because that is the catch. The, the neo-colonialism movements coming out of both the West and the East in terms of either debt or equity grabs of African real resources are something once again that we can look very closely at our political leaders about because we don't want politicians selling birthrights that you know previous generations had snatched from them. You know, Africa's mm. worked very hard to get ownership of itself again. And we have to be very, very careful about short-termist leaders selling out their population's birthrights. Yeah, that sounds sounds wise, yeah. Uh, excellent. So I want to uh round this up by asking about what we're all experiencing this crazy year 2020 <laughs> uh, the pandemic and all that I know you have a, you have a lecture entitled life after COVID-19 
So I think we all want to know what life is going to be after COVID-19. Can, can you please enlighten us there? <laughs> yeah, so that talk really just speaks about the, the changes that have been accelerated this year. You know, in times of crisis, things are, happen fast. And what tends to happen is that things that were already, ideas that were already lying around and trends that were already in play get sped up and get accelerated and get amplified and magnified. So things that like the reversing of globalization for a couple of reasons, for political reasons, as international relations get more fraught, but also for practical reasons, as local economies realize that there's a trade-off in terms of efficiency and resilience when it comes to having globalized supply chains. The globalized supply chain allows for efficiencies and economies of scale, but it also doesn't have much resilience in a crisis when trade routes are literally shut down or when there's currency crises going on. So there's, there's a move back towards sort of localization in terms of supply chains, which is very good for Africa, actually, because we need to invest in developing our own consumer economy rather than just being a sort of export-import economy all the time. So there's a chance there to, to invest locally, one of the big things we're looking at. The other one would be, as we started this conversation with, the shift from growth to degrowth or from sort of, you know, <laughs> optimizing for GDP to optimizing for sustainability. So conversations around things like Kate Roth's donut economics are definitely gaining traction. Her whole concept of having an, you can't overshoot your upper boundary and you also should be imp implementing a social security floor to make sure that people's lives don't slip below basic minimum standards of living. And that brings me to the next one, which is the unfortunate emergence of heterodox economic ideology. And we did speak about this quite a lot earlier about how when central bankers and governments inject extra cash into their economies, they're essentially changing the rules of the game mid-play, creating winners and losers at a local and international level. And we are definitely going to see that, especially with the Biden presidency. That's going, there's going to be perhaps even more of that than would have happened yeah. if the other, the other guy won. So with all silver linings, there's always a yin to every yang. And I think that exactly. the acceleration mm -hmm. of the dollar abusing its position as the biggest boy with the biggest guns in the room has unfortunate implications for my continent. So mm. I, I do take it quite personally when, yeah. when the dollar changes the, 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 the rules of the game. Similarly, they're doing that out of real need, and that is we are definitely going to see a re-looking at the conversation around social security and around welfare. Uh, I know that you coming from Europe are a lot further along in that conversation, and, and older nations, I think, have become more mature and realized the importance of having these structures, and the conversation then becomes how to fund them sustainably. Unfortunately, it looks like when the US and, and ourselves in South Africa, which is even worse, start playing these games, when you try to fund social security safety nets out of money printing, you are setting mm. future generations up for horrible pain. So I think there's, there's both good and bad there. It's good to have conversations about how to have a more safe and secure and inclusive future, but it's very, very dangerous when we start swinging also into short-termism in terms of our economic policies. So I think those are some of, the, some of the bigger things we're looking at there. And I think the other big one that we mentioned is the acceleration of the division of the world in general. So I mentioned the sort of geopolitical fragmentation of balkanization, regionalization. There's also massive inequality growing, and this is largely once again due to changing the, the financial rules of the system. 
money printing does tend to favor the biggest companies and the biggest banks in the room at the expense of your working and middle classes who find themselves treading water at a faster and faster pace. So that decoupling of productivity and labor is another separation, separation between rich and poor on a global level and on a local level, inequality divisions growing there. And also the, the maximizing of the separation, I think I also mentioned it earlier, between the financial economy, the virtual economy, and the real economy. What we've seen this year is the real economy has been plobbered. <laughs> it's suffered quite badly. These are the people that are actually engaged in selling their time, their services, these are the traders that sell actual products. These are the shops that have been closed down. The real economy has felt the pain first, but the virtual economy is more dependent on the virtual on the real economy than perhaps the shareholders that are currently enjoying the, the, the free money printings, you know, driven bubbles on the stock market have necessarily thought through. Yeah. You know, at okay. some point, unless the real economy catches up there, that, that's, that separation is going to have to come back. Some big changes uh, in the pipeline there. Yeah. Yeah. Bronwyn Williams. Thank you for being a guest on the show and good luck with your book now. Thank you very much.